Welcome everyone to Contingent Workforce Radio, coming to you somewhat live. You'll be seeing this hopefully within the past few days. If not, um, greetings from the past. Um, today we'll be talking about ProcureCon contingent staffing. I'm Saad, um, marketing team here at Utmost. And then we also have Erica, if you just want to quickly introduce yourself. Hey guys, it's Erica Novak. I'm head of client services here for Utmost, but really a long time contingent workforce practitioner. Uh, and leader in the industry. That's right. I, need to say uh, myself. I want you to say that for me, Zod. <laughs> too late. We're already recording. Um, so today we're going to be talking about ProcureCon contingent staffing 2020 virtual. Um, I think first off, just like kind of talking about virtual events, they're a pretty big difference. Um, then we'll get into the meat of it. But I don't know, Erica, what do you think of like, you know, there's some interesting aspects of virtual like I don't have to travel I can be wearing shorts and be sitting in my chair while watching a virtual event um, but I don't know what do you think of the pros and cons of some of these virtual events yeah no I, th I think they're probably one of the first ones who've done it which is a little which is ballsy right in, in a good way of saying they're going to kind of hit some of the hiccups that maybe others won't because they're doing it earlier and faster or whatnot so I mean, for me, it it's, is nice because, yeah, you don't have to travel. You get to, you know, you, you have to block up hours of your time. It's harder when you're in your normal office to block time versus when you leave and say you're not looking at your phone, right? So there's a different level of focus. But, um, I mean, overall, I thought they did a good job. Some, there's some tech glitches, and that's okay. But I think it's more about what our expectations were. I don't think anyone really knew what to expect. It was a kind of, the people have done webinars before, but as far as, like, when you call it a conference, I think the presenters are a little bit more nervous about like, where am I? You know, when do I start? When do I end? What do I expect? And then the audience is the exact same. Like, uh, like even you and I had a question like, is, do I have a bio break? Is it three hours back to back? Do I just need to leave and come back? Or is there time? Turned out there was time. Um, but I think it was interesting on the expectations of like, everyone was kind of like just waiting to see what happened. Right. And it was like, yeah. all right, you know, hey, and again, spoiler, it went fine. Right. All, you could hear all the speakers. You could see the different slides. Generally, people, people didn't speak over one another. It kind of had an announcer, an MC through it. Right. I think we'll get better as we do this through the year. But I, I mean, to me, I think they, they met my expectations in a way that I was able to still get through the content versus like, oh, this is so weird. Yeah, I think the two hard, well, hard part for the speaker is uh, that you don't have the crowd reaction of I don't know. I mean, people normally aren't cheering or booing during a convenience <laughs> conference. I don't know. I haven't been to many, um, but you don't have that type of reaction. Um, and then uh, I think from, yeah, from the audience side, it's like, I'm still getting slacks. I'm still getting emails. It's just kind of harder to just pay attention. Like theoretically, if I'm at a physical conference, you still could have your laptop or phone, but I don't think it's the same of you know, your that singular focus engagement that you could have with the physical conference. So it's interesting how, people have tried to adapt. Yeah, I, I think the one thing that I would I would take away from it when I think about other people either presenting or putting these on is I think adding personality goes a long way, right? I think there's usually there's some sort of nervousness and it is hard to talk publicly and especially what you said. You can't, people can't react to it. You can't see them smiling or like leaning in or whatnot. So it's kind of hard to add your own personality, but from someone who's watching it, it goes such a long way. Even if you're making a lame joke or smiling or whatnot, like as someone who's watching, it becomes like TV. You want to yeah. engage like in an emotional way or like, right? You want to do something 
that kind of like jars people into listening because they can tune out. So that's probably my one recommendation to anyone else who does present or speak or a panel is bring in some sort of personality or funny story or feel okay, you know, to use your regular intonation and voice and not just be I'm a professional speaker where it's one note, right? Yeah. Liven up, the, liven up the notes so your audiences are bought into like what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Just one final note and then we'll get into the meat of it. Just that, the comparison is no longer like theater of stages. Like you have these cool lights and you have people sitting on chairs and discussing while you're watching in the audience, like it's a concert or something like that. It's now comparing to like a news broadcast or uh, a TV show, just finding ways to make that compelling. You have, you know, Trevor Noah creating, you know, compelling content um, just through his personality. So yes, it's a hard balance in trying to figure that out so early on right now, but um, it is, it is a big improvement. Um, but yeah, let's get into the meat of it. Uh, so I think there is a lot of very interesting content. Um, so the way that we'll kind of do this, I'll just pick out some things that kind of resonated with me and I'd love to just get your thoughts a little bit more, um, on some of these topics. Um, so I think one of the things that kind of popped out to me was, uh, Pete from Akibia, um, I think it's pharmaceuticals. Um, kind of mention just like what should be your relationship, the contingent workforce program owner's relationship to the MSP. He was kind of very much that the MSP works for him, that the contracts are actually owned by the enterprise and, and not as much by the MSP. Um, so it's kind of wanted to get a better understanding, like there's there pros and cons to one approach or you know, what should the relationship ideally be between the enterprise and its MSP? Yeah. No, and again, for the people who aren't familiar with ProcureCon, it really is kind of a conference for procurement specialist, right? Procurement and strategic sourcing um, um, buyers. So I'm not surprised, right? When the, so that question was geared off like supplier management. Like, what are you expecting your MSP to do, uh, do for you? And so I, I'd say um, Pete's answer was about roughly about 50% with folks believe, right? And I see like, I see a pretty strong mix, right? Some, and, and including myself, my former days at LinkedIn, I was very big proponent of, this is our program that we're asking for your help to facilitate and for your expertise to help us give advice or whatnot. But it's going to be a LinkedIn program, not an MSP program at LinkedIn, right? And so we were a big driver into you know, uh, of really helping set the stage and the tone and have them execute on our vision. However, I do know a lot of other companies where they really think of it outsourcing and just giving it. And then my way, I think about like, sometimes they chuck it over to the MSP and like, you guys are the experts, you figure it out, right? And so it was, it's interesting. I think that's what Pete was reacting to, the mm. idea of some MSPs come in because they're used to that type of client and expect to kind of run the show and Pete was kind of saying, no, like, this is, this is my show. This is how I want you to execute. I'm hoping that more, more buyers lean in that, in that party. I believe that's the way um, that you're actually going to get the right results because you're setting expectations, you're being clear. And then the MSB has a strategy to execute versus having to guess or just use their out of the box. Here's what most people want and hoping that's right. And then usually what happens is in a QBR or two down the road, they get yelled at because expectations weren't set up because there wasn't enough kind of ownership in there. And so again, mm -hmm. I'm hoping more folks have that relationship with the MSP where it's really crisp and clear what, what people are looking for and how they execute on it. Could we dig into that a little bit more? Like um, how do you set those expectations up from the start of that? This is our program 
and you're helping to facilitate it. Or even I think some MSPs honestly want that, or probably want some of that, just like communication and guidance on what's going to be happening. But like, what's the best way to kind of set that stage up front? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple different ways, and and some were talked about in in this uh, in this conference, and some were not, right? Um, so one of uh, one of the things comes out is just again, what makes this successful in goals? Like, what problems are you trying to solve, mm-hmm. right? And this is usually what helps with like a first gen like first gen program. You call out like, what were the problems or what are our goals? So at the end of the year, you're able to say yes, we met them or we didn't. When you get into like that second or third year, refreshing those goals sometimes can be, becomes a little bit harder, but as part of that is ownership of contracts. And this is something that was addressed in, in, in the, uh, the conference was who owns the, the staffing supplier contracts? Is it direct with the enterprise or is it direct to the MSP? And again, I see more of a, it's probably a 70-30 split. 70% generally have the MSP on the staffing supplier contracts because it helps with the administrative. Like truly it is the administrative burden and lift that the MSP is able to do that takes it away from procurement. In Pete's case, he was the 30%, right? His was saying, I want to own it, even though it's more work for me, it actually gives me more flexibility. Because if the MSP uh, goes out of business, or if I don't like what the MSP is doing, and want to change, it's that much easier because the staffing supplier relationship is with me. So now I'm undoing is inserting the MSP versus having to renegotiate all of those other contracts again. So again, I think it depends on kind of short term to long term strategy, how big your sourcing team is how it's an administrative lift that you think it does provide for you, but I see it in a probably a 70-30 split. And then it comes down to communication, right? So what are you expecting that MSP's relationship to those suppliers be? Some programs have like over a hundred different staffing suppliers, right? Where it's, all right, we want you to know, and I used to say this at LinkedIn, you know, do they like mint chocolate chip ice cream? Are they married? Do they have a brother who's getting, uh, who I almost said circumcised, that's wrong, who's getting, you know, getting a diploma and something like that. Um, that's an example of getting a joke, guys. But um, you know, really having that relationship. And in those programs, it's actually really hard to have that type of level of communication, where if you have a smaller kind of rationalized staffing supplier. But what is important in the communication is, what do you as the enterprise expect to send to individuals like the contractors themselves versus what you want the supplier to versus what is co-communicated right and i think generally speaking without an emergency it's really mm-hmm. mixed it's not called out right no and no one can really predict the future or whatnot but even in things that like submit your time card is that the msp is that the manager right is that the enterprise like how does this who actually does that and the answer is kind of both or whatnot but i think setting the stage of what you want the MSP to do on your behalf versus what you're keeping and having kind of clear roles and responsibility of that is really important, especially come emergency. Yeah. Just to um, add on to that or kind of maybe thinking back to a conversation that we had with uh, Stephen Kekich about um, kind of like the, it's the iteration that you can kind of constantly evolve your program. Um, and, and the first part you have just setting out, um, I guess what he said was, you know, getting 20% of the way to 80%. So you're building upon um, the initial stages of the program. So kind of thinking about that from like the, the um, you know, building out the basic building blocks, that level of maturity all play a big role in, I imagine, um, building out and figuring out what should be the relationship with the MSP and what the goals are. Yep. No, I definitely uh, agree with that. The other thing I think is interesting, because the, again, the question that came up was really around COVID right and like how do you who who responds and tells the 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 contingent worker 
kind of what's going on. And there was different answers from the panel and whatnot. But one of the things that I kind of walked away with was, generally speaking, in contingent workforce programs, MSPs really own the relationships for just the staffing suppliers. Even those who have the SOW module, they don't really own the relationship with the staffing suppliers. And so one of the things that I walked away with that I did want a better answer to was on communication, right? So in these emergencies, and let's, let's go back to like the COVID example, great, your contractors through staffing suppliers through your MSP now get this beautiful, nice note, maybe on the right regular cadence. But what about all the other staffing suppliers and all the other non-employees, right? Is that the MSP's job? I think the answer is no, it's kind of outside of scope. But the yeah. enterprise job, is that procurement or HR? How do you actually do it? So we actually didn't get into the details of what about the other ones that you have to go search in your email or ask procurement in the business lines to say, do you know the account manager for these workers who has information? I think that is what you start to hear in the business continuity plans of what people are going to be doing now and in the future is how do you get everyone? What are those supplier uh, communication strategies that you have as well as the individuals that are outside of a true contractor definition? Yeah, I think the parts that are kind of already set up is like, yeah, you have good relationships, communication with your suppliers, your QBRs, even your weekly sit downs, you might have like preferred partners that come in, um, you know, back pre COVID. Um, but the communication with those people outside of those relationships, especially when you don't have their email addresses. I think that's a really good point and question for how, how do we solve that? Um, did want to kind of shift now a little bit related, but it's like about suppliers. Um, so one thing that kind of came up was that uh, the nature of COVID has a lot of companies cutting back on, and if they're not an essential business, or even if they are an essential business, just the way that they need to set up their factories, set up their places, um, it could mean that they need to just change protocols, they need to work with different suppliers. Um, and some suppliers that they're finding out just they'll be going out of business. And um, some of the folks were discussing of making sure that suppliers themselves are more financially solvent. They have suppliers themselves have those business continuity plans. Um, I think it was even suggested like succession plans, like if the supplier owner passes away, what happens next? I'm not sure if this was done before at all in the past, but curious just to get your take or thought on this increased focus on the suppliers themselves and their, their own business continuity. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that was a big one about supplier due diligence. And actually, you saw this in the contingent workforce industry about, ugh, I'm going to get the dates wrong, but let's just pretend it's about 10 years ago or so. A company called Chimes went out of business. And then every RFP was like, make sure your financial statements are in there. And what's been your revenue for the last three years? It really became, shook up uh, the contingent workforce industry because uh, a bankruptcy at this level had never happened before. And just all the players that were involved. And so it actually is interesting to see it kind of rear its head again, saying, wait a second, you know, are we your only clients? You know, if we go out of business or, 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 uh, um, or our services to start to decline, can you actually make it through? So I do believe that's probably a long lasted COVID change, or at least the next couple of years is if procurement is doing, is doing true RFPs or even if an RFI, I do think there's gonna be more due diligence on staffing, uh, staffing suppliers specifically, consulting suppliers, uh, MSPs and VMSs as far as like, what are your plans if an emergency happens? We heard Adam from Truist talk about uh, that they do kind of the, the scaling exercises or 
the stress test exercise every year from the bank's perspective. And they have a litany of different things that are already in there. And he had spoken about the pandemic not being part of it or an owner passing away not being part of the stress test to call out and say a lot of staffing companies are privately held, right? Potentially from an aunt or an uncle or a mom or a dad, but what's the plan if someone does pass away, right? Uh, what if that son or uncle or niece or the next in line don't want to take over the business? What do you do? And starting to ask those questions. And that's, I think what you're getting to is like succession planning. If the CEO or president or owner goes away, can your company still thrive? And so I think there'll be a couple different ways that the larger enterprises will start to ask uh, and, and push on that. And what we can't, what we saw from the live Q&A is even a staffing supplier came back and was like, literally, I think asked the question, wait a sec, do you mean if I'm not financially viable, you don't want to do business with me? And it kind of stunned, I think, the panel and every, they said in a nice way, like, yes, right? <laughs> yes. If you only have a couple clients. Right? And, and I, I do think everyone will have a distinction between like startup and new versus long-term, right? We know there's a growth path to it, but yeah, you've been in business for four years and have two clients and I'm 70% of your revenue. That's not long-standing, right? In an emergency, if something gets shut down or someone gets sick or so, that could potentially put us at risk. So I think, you know, the succession plan, financial solvency, security, and infosec, I think they, they, um, they dove into that as well, saying they usually have security measurements in place, but maybe going a little bit further down. And questions like, and this was surprising to me, um, does a supplier use desktops or laptops? Because if they only have desktops, right? We heard a couple of different uh, examples of, in different countries of suppliers not being able to go remote because they only had desktops for their employees versus laptops. So getting them even to that granular level of like how you actually uh, are producing your work was discussed. And is this something that you could tease out and, or it could only be asked during an RFP or like, you know, could right now enterprise like do this audit of their due diligence of the financials of these suppliers, like saying, um, Hey, send me your financials right now. There's no, like they're mid contract. Is that something that they could do or how does, how would that even work? Yeah, no, I, I think, I mean, depending on the contract, you know, you do have certain audit rights and all and not. Um, again, I think it'll de depend by industry and depend on what the contract says, but I do think there's things that you can do as long as you're able to show that it's to help promote the business or make sure that you're not at risk. I do think they may be asking some things that may be a little far, far reaching, right? And when I think about COVID response and you hear about some personal liberties being taken, you know, is that, is that too far? I kind of feel like everyone's response is going to go one, two layers too far and then kind of come back. But to answer your question more specifically, as I absolutely think in the remaining portion of 2020, it is very like reasonable to say that someone's going to be asking a little bit more about your business, how you conduct, what's going on, and your expectations. So they can either kind of check a box or feel good in the relationship that you have, that you're actually going to be a partner to them and not something that they consider a risk. Makes sense. Um. Another topic that I want to touch upon um, is the uh, well. It kind of spurred my thought when um, Wendy from Thomson Reuters mentioned in her presentation uh, that um, that people outside of Thomson Reuters are more likely to know about the direct sourcing program than internally. I mean, then earlier people were also discussing of just making sure that your programs is known to all of your stakeholders. Um, I think it might have been Jill from AB, IB. 
IBM who said that um, you probably work with 80%, uh, a certain 80% of the group that's common, you frequently engage with them, but there's some who you don't engage with as much um, and just making sure that they have that knowledge. Um, and then Conrad himself was also from Farmers Insurance was mentioning, just making sure that your program is well regarded enough so that's even brought into these kind of crisis meetings. So I think there's just an interesting conversation going on about like internally marketing, branding, communicating that this program exists and that it needs to be involved. Um, but just wanted to get your thoughts on you know, maybe either how to do it or like what to start thinking about. Like this seems like a challenging issue to deal with, but it seems like other programs have been able to adapt or at least are proactive in that type of communication. Yeah, no, and this is, it, it, it was such, so it's an important thing to say, because we've talked about this, like being an advocate for your contingent workers, being able to influence stakeholders and how do you do that, right? So you have two different audience here. Like one is your cross-functional stakeholder partners, and that is there is no excuse for them to not who you are, right? If, whether you're an HR procurement, you should absolutely have an HR procurement partner that you're working with, right, at the deeper level. Same thing I would assume with IT, security, facilities, infosec, internal audit, and legal, at the very least, your stakeholder partners. And I will say this, for the smaller programs, it is tough, right? When you're building a program, and I'll, I'll say in low headcount numbers and low spend, Sometimes it, easy to, it is easy to push to the wayside because the focus is on growth of your employees or you don't have enough quite volume or traction to kind of call attention. And I'll say this, it is difficult, but still a thousand percent, an absolute has to be done. And so it is the CW program, again, I go back, it's either HR or procurement to make themselves known. I think Conrad did a really, he exemplified it very nicely of saying he didn't have to be asked to be put, to be part of the emergency crisis team sorry, he didn't raise his hand to say, put me on it. He was asked. They knew because of the program that he had and the volume that it made sense for him to be a part of the discussion. And I think that's the end point that contingent programs need to be looking for. Most programs still have to do, be doing the knocking on the door, right? Hey, should I be part of this conversation? Not even that. It should be, I should be part of this conversation because there are seven types of non-employees in 27 different countries with different types of access and supplier relationships that you're not thinking about in your use cases, right? And that's really where the statement should come. Come with numbers, come with facts. I have this many non-employees and include the outsourced and your SOW and your freelancers and your contractors. Don't just do your contractors, do everyone because how you actually communicate in crisis communications with folks who have email versus not differs. You need to come up with those flows. So, Coming to those meetings and knowing who to ask, and again, if you don't know who that HR person is, find out exactly today. Talk to your HRBP or recruiter. You can go use your internet, find that person, ask who from HR is responsible for it, and have coffee with them, a virtual coffee from them, and say, here's why it's important to be part of these conversations. So again, I say smaller teams have harder because sometimes people haven't seen like that volume or so, but that use case is incredibly important, so they should go after it. Medium-sized to large programs, usually you've been in the trenches with enough people to know, but again, go after whoever is responsible. Usually there's going to be an HR and security lead, right? So go find them to make sure. And then really on all those other stakeholders I mentioned is those are the folks that you should be at least touching in at least once a quarter. If you can do it as a group, that is phenomenal. That's the right level of commitment of what's going on in the non-employee world and the employee world, but let's say the non-employee world. Usually facilities, IT, um, 
security, legal, internal audit, procurement, and HR all have touched it in some way and are working on a couple different projects or whatnot. So bringing those teams together to understand we onboarded 25% more non-employees than we did from last year or last quarter. Or, hey, do you know that India grew and Brazil shrunk? What's happening? Someone in that meeting is going to know. And if it hasn't been scheduled, you do it. And start small if not everyone agrees. But HR and procurement should absolutely, I mean, I would go HR, procurement, um, IT and legal will be the four at the, that I would absolutely put in that meeting. So, I mean, on the stakeholder one, I 100% agree. Now, moving to the next audience of the actual user base. And again, this is what's hard, right? We've all, even at our company, which is fairly small, it's really hard to consume all this information about all the different teams. And so usually you kind of put some to the wayside. And so I think about, you know, what, what Jill from IBM said about your 80% of your users are kind of like in tune, they get it, they know where to find you on a wiki, they know what your systems are, they know who you are if they see a pickup call. But that 20% doesn't, right? So how do you make sure they, that, that, that they do, or they know where to go or not? And that I go back to your stakeholder partner relationships, because usually your HRBPs are gonna know those business managers, or your HRBP is gonna be that one HR person that most of the senior leaders in the business line is gonna ask any HR, any people related question, right? So that HRBP should be your advocate and be like, hey, that's a fantastic question. Go to Erica Novak, she owns our extended workforce program. She has all that information, right? Same thing with procurement. Doesn't matter if you're HR procurement, you should have legal and your HRBP person for those different business lines down pat and they should know who you are so they can always kind of add. But yeah, you want folks to know in the company about you. It's just incredibly hard because everyone's really busy. So again, now to Wendy's point about people, she had said at Thomson Reuters, people outside her company knew more about her direct sourcing uh, program than internally. And that hits that too, right? The external branding you know, with her direct sourcing, um, she has people posting jobs on her behalf and curating, you know, talent coming in. And so she actually has almost like marketing, right, with the job postings to going out on different sites and X, Y, and Z. And so usually those contractors are aware. And then how do you get this job? And it kind of trickles down. But making sure I think that all employees understand the different talent avenues, that is incredibly tricky. Because again, we're bombarded by 90,000 messages on our computers a day, not alone by the 20,000 from our phones. So to me on that one, it becomes, how do you negotiate for space on the HR page or the internal wiki page? Mm -hmm. How do you make sure that whatever you call your program, whether, you know, uh, flex force or contingent workforce, extended workers, whatever it ends up being, has space visibly on any HR site. Up at the front, not nine links down, not four links down. Should be on that home page or at the very, very deepest, one link down so it takes a manager a nanosecond to find you if they did the least amount of work all right let me pause there because that was a lot <laughs> so follow-ups on that or in a good spot um well like just, just break it down into like what would be like the most impactful ways to make sure that the the users the stakeholders uh, you've mentioned a few different things things like the wiki um, things like the quarterly meetings, um, things like uh, talking with HRBP, but you know, if you'd had to pick like one or two projects that, I don't know, a, a more early stage uh, program is getting going, like what, what would you think would be um, important? Assuming that they have, you know, limited relationships right now, like what would that be? Yeah, I mean, let's do, I think table stakes is an internal wiki site. Mm -hmm. 
right? It has to be searchable, right? So at the very least, you need something that brings someone to something, not just you have to know, oh, Carrie or Josh is responsible for this program. Go talk to mm. him. You need to have something, some type of searchable content. I think when we were at enterprise level, it's expected that you have basically your own internal Google that I can search for. And it's incredibly important on that search that you're using SEO and you're calling out the keywords that you think is important, right? So to me, that is a absolutely must have. If you can't have that for whatever reason, right? Then I go by like that quarterly newsletter that totally annoys everyone they didn't ask to receive, but then your name is popping up and there's some things that they can go back and search for. Um, stakeholder meetings, right? Uh, I used to call it pound the pavement. So when you're a smaller company, a bigger company, it's tougher to do now with COVID, but non-excusable because you have Zoom. It's actually easier to talk to people immediately, right? Is making sure that you are just touching in for 10 to 15 minutes with those stakeholders, with that business line. Doesn't matter what the personality type is, if they're very extroverted or introverted and think that you're wasting your time. 10 to 15 minutes with those people. A spider graph of the network effect is more people that you touch and remember your name. Again, so if you don't have the content, and even if you do, but if you connect with different folks all around the company, the spider graph of people who will know your name are incredibly important. If you are a heads down team who only relies on IM emails or phone calls and hoping that it catches on, it won't. Your job is to brand and your job is to get out there as if you're that spokesperson and making sure that you're touching in with folks. So that's about four or five things that I think are just non-negotiables. It's not a one or the other, it is all. And if you don't have that, you're gonna be a very unknown program to, to most of your company. And just to um, dive into the pound of payment one, uh, just because you have experience already working remotely, you know, uh, for, for a good amount and now people are kind of adjusting into that. Like a lot of people probably would try and do that in office, like they would, you know, talk at the water cooler, so to speak, or like the snack stand, whatever it was, like that was their way of just checking in and, you know, spending five minutes. Um, but now that everyone is in that virtual environment, um, any tips from someone who's already been kind of in that virtual environment for a while of how to pound the pavement and make sure that people are aware of you so when you don't have that kind of snack or water cooler? Well, absolutely. Again, the first one is always be respectful of your time. If you book an hour for somebody, you better expect to get some fucking work done. So my is when you're doing something that's much more lighthearted, right? It should be with someone that you kind of already know. And if it's not, then you are pitching the program, but 15 minutes. I just want to see how you're doing, especially during this COVID time where more people aren't like, uh, they're getting used to the back to 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 back meetings, but it's exhausting. So you see the articles from New York times the Washington post of like zoom exhaustion, right? Which to me is funny. I've been remote for six years. But what it's actually, this is actually a crucial time because people are actually dying for one human connection and two, a non-work related call. Hey, I just want to see how you're doing. What's going on with your kids, your pet, your dad, or whatnot. Those conversations are actually way more entrenching than the, let me tell you about my program. The having them know who you are as a human and vice versa is a way to have people remember who you are far more than any PowerPoints you could actually do. And I encourage you, again, this is with people that you kind of already known, start there. Now for the people you don't know, it's really hard to kind of say, hey, let's have a 15 minute chat. I just wanna know who you are, Saad, right? They're gonna say, you are weird, I have work to do. 
with those, it makes more sense to kind of come with an agenda. Hey, I heard you had a need or you just had, you know, had with this. Oh, you know, I, you just joined the company. Your predecessor had a lot of contingent. Just want to make sure you're aware of your things. I have three slides. I'm going to do this in 10 minutes, but want to make sure you know how I can help you. And the key on that is I am here to take work off your plate, right? Not here's what I'm asking you to do. Here's how you fill out a rec for so my job is easier. No. Here's how when I pound the payment at LinkedIn, how I garnered a lot of the relationships was here's what I'm doing and here's how it's going to take work off of your plate. I want to make sure I'm doing it in a way that you're seeing the value, true or false, face to face. And they're like, oh, hallelujah. Right. But it is, I'm going to do this so it's easier for you. Not here's how you follow my process. So my job is easier. Yeah. Right. So again, I think to me, you stock them on their calendar in a nice, polite, political correct way, but you say, what makes sense? Don't, don't slot yourself in. Don't be their ninth meeting of the day. Put it two weeks out where there's not a lot of meetings. Set an appropriate amount of time. Come with, in your mind, an agenda. Just wanted to say, hi, here's what's going on. Make their day with a smile or something like that. Don't be awkward, right? Um, have a backup in case it does get awkward. If they look like you, like, what are we doing here? You can just say, hey, just want to make sure you know, 25, you know, you're, 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 you can say something like your team's hired 25% more contingent workers than they have in the last year. I wasn't sure if you're going to be a manager, if you're aware of our program, just wanted to let you know who I am. So if you have that need, you know who to call. That's it. You know, do you think you have anything coming up? So like you can have backup conversations when it doesn't go as you want, but you come kind of, kind of come compared, but do not waste people's time and they will thank you for it. Yeah, no, that's a totally is really a good guiding principle of just how you can make their jobs or their lives easier rather than how can you make my life easier by filling out all these forms and uh, yeah, that's, that's totally is something. I mean, as a, as a marketer, that's, that's also kind of always in my mind is that your goal is to make someone's lives easier, not to just say me, 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 me. Um, so I think that's, that's a, a really, really good insight. Yeah. With, with HR and procurement, we kind of forget we've been taught like our vision to values and our charging model. Right. And we are as important as two. And I think it's really grounding when you think about our programs are supposed to be talent enablement and we are supposed to save them time and money. Right. So you come into it as like, here's what I'm doing for you is so critical in this. Like we're in this together and my job is to make everything you do much easier. So you don't have to think about this again. Like that turns light bulbs on for people. Right. Because that, they're not used to having someone say that to them. They're used to yeah. saying, hearing them say, my program is important. Here's what my OKR is. My goal is this compared to yours, not I'm going to make your dreams come true. <laughs> All right. Um, I feel like we could go into a whole nother episode about just that and like the different value propositions of programs. Um, but I think we have to go. They're kicking us out of the studio. So uh, thank you everyone for joining this episode of Contingent Workforce Radio. Um, it's brought to you by Utmost, an extended workforce system designed for workday users. And this has been Saad. And to close Erica. it off. <laughs> All right. Take care, everyone. Thanks so much.